0: Henry Miller entered the Western Union as personnel manager in 1920, and three years into the job, he finally took his first vacation. Instead of the regular two weeks, he took three and wrote as much as he was able to. Thinking that a real writer had to do at least 5,000 words a day, he wrote five, seven, sometimes as much as 8,000 words a day. He thought he had to say everything all at once in one magnificent and enormous book and collapse afterwards. To quote Miller, I didn't know a thing about writing. I was scared shitless, but I was determined to wipe Horatio Alger out of the North American consciousness. His first attempt would become a colossal tome and faulty from start to finish. Later, he would reflect that it just might have been the worst book any man had ever written. Nevertheless, it was his first book and he was in love with it. Had he had the money, he would have published it on his own dime. Had he had the courage, he would have done what Walt Whitman had done and gone from door to door trying to sell it. Everyone he showed it to said it was terrible. He was urged to give up the idea of writing, but he had indeed learned a valuable lesson. He had learned that one must write volumes before signing one's own name. He understood that one must give up everything and not do anything else but write. He understood that one must write and write and write, even if everybody in the world advises you against it, even if no one believes in you. Well, perhaps it was precisely because no one believed he'd make it was the reason that he had to pursue it. Perhaps the real secret lied in making people believe. And not only would he make people believe, but he would soon cause horrible outrage. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, authors, and those who push the boundaries. I am your host, Jason Moore Hardin, and on this episode, we continue our exploration into controversial books with Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer. Doesn't become an artist overnight. First, you have to be crushed to have your conflicting points of view annihilated. You have to be wiped out as a human being in order to be born again an individual. You have to be carbonized and mineralized in order to work upwards from the last common denominator of the self. You have to get beyond pity in order to feel from the very roots of your being. End quote. It's 1934, Henry Miller's novel Tropic of Cancer has been published in France, though not yet in the U.S. The book is a first-person account of his life in Paris during the 1920s and 30s and is specifically frank and unrestrained concerning its descriptions of sex. Combining autobiography and fiction, some chapters follow a narrative of some kind and refer to his actual friends, colleagues, and workplaces. Others are written as stream of consciousness reflections that are occasionally epiphanic. The novel is written in the first person, as are many of his other novels, and does not have a linear organization, but rather frequently jumps between the past and the present. A Four years earlier, in 1930, Henry had found his exuberant new voice, the voice he would apply in Tropic of Cancer, in his letters to his painter friend Emil Schnellach. He and Schnellach went all the way back to the Brooklyn neighborhood where they both had grown up. Schnellach was also the one who had lent him the ten dollars that was in his pocket when he sailed to Europe. A Tropic of Cancer was the voice of a New York writer revolting against New York, After two years of living like a vagabond in Europe, he was sick of gathering experiences and knew that he had more than enough to tell once he got back to New York. To his friend, Schnellach, Miller wrote that he would explode in what he then referred to as the Paris book. To hell with form, style, expression, and all those pseudo-paramount things that beguile the critics, he wrote, and added, you see, emil this book, which I call tentatively the last book, is like that beautiful big valise of yours, of stout leather that expands or collapses, that you throw things into pell-mell, regardless of whether they are starched, or pressed, or stained, or not stained. I've gotten over the idea of writing literature, if you can understand what I mean by that. Almost from the day I arrived, I sensed something different in the air, in my air. New York always gave me a sinking feeling when I came back. Paris is smiling. She welcomes you without distinction of race, creed, or color. Her vegetables look brighter, her women gayer, her workers more industrious, her cops more intelligent. She is aged, but not careworn. The roofs are so wonderful, all those fucking chimney pots. The black of them, the slanting studio windows, the walls with their traces of rooms which no longer exist, the bridges, each one like a poem. Well, it's like my home now, though I remain a foreigner and always will be. But whenever I make a journey, it will always be Paris that I want to think of coming back to, not New York. New York belongs in a finished past, a past like some evil dream. Only get desperate enough and everything will turn out well, was Henry's Paris mantra. And he proved it true. Tropic of Cancer could not be written until Henry let go of literature, of New York, of all his ties to the tailor shop and his mother. It was to be the last book, a book by the last man on earth, a book to end all books. He began writing Tropic of Cancer thinking he would publish the book anonymously as it would free him from many restraints, from both interior and exterior factors, but later changed his mind. Another thing that changed was the title he first intended to title it, Crazy Cock. He gave the following explanation of why the book's title in the end became Tropic of Cancer. It was because to me cancer symbolizes the disease of civilization, the end point of the wrong path, the necessity to change course radically, to start completely over from scratch. Upon its completion, Tropic of Cancer lay in limbo for two years waiting to be published. Henry had met Jack Kahane of Obelisk Press through an agent in Paris, and Kahane believed in Tropic of Cancer. But as it turned out, he had more admiration than money, and he was frightened of publishing such a dangerous book. Tropic of Cancer only appeared after fellow writer and love interest Anaïs Nin underwrote its printing expenses. It cost her 5,000 francs, the equivalent of $6,000 today, money which she had borrowed when tropic of cancer eventually appeared in 1934 it was priced at an exorbitant 50 francs and then there was the printed caveat now i'm going to have to ask you to please literally excuse my french "Ce livre ne doit pas <laughs> être exposé en vitrine i gave it a try english translation this book may not be shown in windows This was banded around its lurid, crab-festooned cover. Lurid cover or not, Tropic of Cancer established Henry's reputation. The responses were slow to come, but Henry was indefatigable in promoting his own work, and eventually the likes of George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, and T.S. Eliot, among many others, responded enthusiastically to the piece. Furthermore, contemporary women writers like Kay Boyle and Anais Nin also saw the book as a breakthrough and did not fault its depiction of women. When it was finally published in the U.S. in 1961, it caused a huge uproar. And after months of debate and controversy, the decision had come down from the New York State's Court of Appeals. Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer was banned. Judge John F. Scalepi called the book Dirt for Dirt's Sake, which is almost a compliment compared to the more strongly worded opinion from Pennsylvania Judge Michael Musmano. In 1966, Musmano described Tropic of Cancer as, Not a book. It is a cesspool, an open sewer, a pit of putrefaction, a slimy gathering of all that is rotten in the debris of human depravity. As a result of the New York Court of Appeals' decision on July 10, 1963, anyone distributing, selling, or even, and of particular concern to libraries, loaning Henry Millow's novel would be in violation of the law. Brooklyn Public Library took immediate action to be in compliance. All copies of the book in the system Approximately 400 in total were sent to the office of the assistant chief librarian, Margaret Freeman, and all catalog cards indexing the book were removed from files. Even before the ruling, the book's position on Brooklyn Public Library shelves was tenuously held, which is especially unfortunate when you consider that the author grew up in this very borough at 662 Driggs Avenue in Williamsburg. Along with the director of the Brooklyn Public Library, Francis R. St. John, chief librarian Margaret Freeman was asked to testify on the issue before the King's County Grand Jury in January of 1962. After grilling Freeman on the ins and outs of Brooklyn Public Library's collection policy, the assistant district attorney gave her a copy of the book and asked her to read aloud a passage from page 5 in mixed company. Freeman demurred, however, with the caveat that there are many books she would not read in mixed company. Other questions centered on whether or not the book had a plot. Freeman answered that it did not. She was asked whether it was purchased because of the notoriety of the author. Again, she answered, no. Finally, she was asked whether she thought the book was obscene. Again, her reply was, no. Then came St. John, who was also invited to read the infamous passage from page 5 before the group. And when St. John replied that he didn't think that targeting discrete paragraphs was a fair way to judge the totality of a book, the assistant district attorney continued to page 6 and asked John to read from that page instead. St. John stood his ground, and the assistant district attorney indicated that he'd go through the entire book if he had to page by page, with St. John refusing at every turn to read aloud in polite company. Now St. John coolly replied that he'd be happy to read the whole book to the grand jury, noting that it had taken him a full three hours to read it himself the night before, and that reading out loud was generally slower going than reading to oneself. A true librarian, St. John was. In effect, threatening to bore the grand jury into submission with a marathon reading of a plotless novel. Now, After the July 1963 ruling, once the book was pulled from shelves, indignant patrons and staff alike wrote to support their right to read what they chose. The library was in a difficult position. The book selection policy and mission of the institution explicitly stated It is the function of the public library in America today to provide the means through which all people may have free access to the thinking on all sides of all ideas. To excise a book from the collection because some found its ideas challenging was against the core principles of the institution and its staff. On the other hand, as a publicly funded entity, the library could not openly defy the law of the land. After an uneasy year, the Supreme Court ruled in June of 1964 that Miller's book could not constitutionally be banned, decisively closing the issue and upholding Americans' right to read what they chose. Publication of Tropic of Cancer did, without a doubt, change Henry Miller's life. Though it certainly did not make him financially secure, something he was not able to achieve until the very end of his life, the novel consolidated his view of himself as a writer, strengthened his resolve to produce a great oeuvre, and gave him himself in a very basic way. It was as if the various parts of his personality finally came together, The passion of the writing seemed to impart a new strength to his soul. He had been reborn through Tropic of Cancer. Though much in it was a wildly heightened, surreal version of his life in Paris, though he was never as profligate as the narrator seems to imply, he did blast through to a new vision of life. He made peace with the wild man and himself, with his own mortality and his own sexuality. He was never To be the same afterward. Let's wrap up this episode with a quote from the controversial author himself Develop an interest in life as you see it. The people, things, literature, music, the world is so rich, simply throbbing with rich treasures, beautiful souls, and interesting people. Forget yourself. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemo Harding. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words or paypal.me slash house of words podcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. And finally, we'd like to make mention of the main sources for this episode. The Devil at Large by Erica Jong, Henry Miller on Writing, and the article Dirt for Dirt Sick, The Trials of Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, found on the Brooklyn Library webpage. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Nimore Harden. And music by Creature9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Cristo M. Sanchez and Jason Lemoore Harden.